9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am pleased to be joined today by our friend Lori Garrett, Pulitzer Prize-winning medical journalist, one of the great leading voices during the course of this pandemic. In a little while, we'll be joined, of course, by Dr. Kavita Patel, who's always with us on Thursday afternoons. But she is performing medicine someplace or performing journalism someplace. Let me start off with you, though, Lori. The CDC has made some decisions today that seem relevant to our discussion. Maybe we could start with that. Yeah, the CDC's advisory committee was voting today, much as the FDA's advisory committee did last week. And like the FDA committee, they faced the same darn problem. So on the one hand, you have all this data from Israel in particular, and some pretty striking data from the United States that shows that vaccine-induced immunity does wane over time. All the best, strongest data is about Pfizer because Pfizer is the vaccine that was used in Israel. The Israeli data in particular is very striking. I mean, it shows a marked diminution in vaccine efficacy with time, particularly in terms of infection, not so much in terms of hospitalization and acute illness, fortunately. Now, the Israelis went ahead, gave a third dose, and across their society, it had a dramatic impact, uh, which was demonstrated in the FDA hearings last week. It was so striking how much impact the third dose had in Israel that you can't ignore it, even though we don't have the ability to really replicate those findings. The problem is that the FDA filed for permission to the FDA to go with a third dose, mimicking the experience in Israel in the United States. But the data set they used to make their case is terrible. And it had the FDA committee freaking out. And for the last two sessions, it had the CDC advisory ACIP committee freaking out. And here's what's wrong with it, David. They took their original vaccine study pool from spring, summer 2020. So this is a pool of overwhelmingly white people, overwhelmingly people over 60, overwhelmingly middle-class, often professional-class individuals living in urban areas. So it's a very skewed population. And they tr- they've been tracking those people over time. One whole set of them went straight to third dose eventually, and another subset of them was originally receiving placebo, so they come in later in with even their first dose, and that becomes a way of comparing two populations of people for how durable their responses are and with kind of jogged time periods between them. So... On one level, it's a great study because, you know, they have some data to compare two different time points 
of vaccination before they apply a third dose. But the problem is they're trying to get people to vote on whether 16-year-olds, 25-year-olds, people with underlying conditions and so on should have access to a third dose. But their data set isn't about any of those people. The data set Pfizer presented to FDA is so skewed that all of the panel members, both on the FDA and CDC side, said, whoa, we're not comfortable. This is really not great. And so when asked, do you think that everybody who feels they have some indication or need and is over 18 should have access to a third dose, both sides, FDA and CDC advisors said, "Uh uh-uh. You know, you got to show us some data. We're not going down that rabbit hole. The CDC committee has proven more willing to accept arguments presented by the CDC scientists themselves based on sort of general epidemiology, what has been seen with rates of hospitalization based on numbers of vaccines spread over what period of time in what subpopulations of Americans. But the FDA committee was not interested really in looking at all the available epidemiology, they were much more interested in just what the heck is Pfizer claiming? What's their data set look like? And we don't like it. It looks really limited. Let me uh, welcome Dr. Kavita Patel. I forewarned our audience that you would be here. Of course, the fact is you're always here. How are you, Kavita? I'm good. I, I, could always, I can always listen to Lori's. So that made me smile. So, so Lori has provided some context for the data with which they were working mm-hmm. and why they were reluctant in certain areas. Do you have some commentary or update that sort of feeds off of that based on what's happened? What I thought might actually get introduced, even though it has no relevance and what the FDA and CDC have to do is global equity. So much of the public conversation, rightfully so, around boosters has actually been about Listen, you know, even if it's 50 million doses, that's 50 million that someone else is not getting in another country where they've had 1% vaccination rates so far because of availability. So that did not come up. That was an interesting observation, despite, you know, that being an overarching sentiment. And then the second was, I think that we're watching just how clunky vaccine policy can be. It's dynamic. Policy in general has been incredibly clunky in this p- pandemic, both administrations, because it's usually not on above the full front page headlines. It's even more clunky when you have a very dynamic pandemic where you could not have predicted Delta. Lori did, but most humans could not have predicted a variant like Delta at the timing that we had. And we started to see this Israeli data, which is compelling. By the way, we've got U.S. data that's also decently compelling. And I'll put on my former White House hat. I will say this. How much do you want to let this go before the mortality reports come out that this could have been prevented? And that's the conundrum here. You you now have enough data to say that a booster shot can be very helpful in certain populations, but that it could actually make a difference in all age groups, depending on the goal. If the goal is to decrease infections because decreased infections lead to decreased hospitalizations, then this might be a good idea for all Americans now. And I think that that tension is something that we're watching play out. And I'll just also say that like the CDC has never been, the advisory committee has never been put in this kind of position where literally, you know, the world media is looking at their votes and one vote has never had so much impact. But today they voted 
the advisory committee went against what the FDA put in their emergency authorization, I think because of wording and did not recommend that people in high risk occupations and I think of a healthcare worker as high risk. They actually showed data that shows that because I wear so much protective equipment that I'm not high risk. The CDC advisory committee voted against kind of a blanket recommendation for people in high risk occupations and exposures to COVID-19 to get a booster dose. And so it's just leaving, I think, a lot of people unsettled. It's certainly going to leave the Biden administration. I actually know that the Biden, again, deep state getting it here. The Biden administration is trying to go back because we have not had a situation that any of us can recall, that folks can recall where you've had the advisory committee, the CDC kind of do something or recommend something that goes against some of the black and white language in the FDA. My guess is that once they kind of go through legal counsel internally in the administration, they'll find the FDA ranks high. The FDA writes kind of the regulatory language. The CDC is really just recommendations. And so the FDA will kind of win in this. But it reveals, David, that policy is not easy, as probably the three of us know. No, I I agree with almost everything you said. The the thing that troubles me is, first of all, it's not really part of their charge to talk about global use. They were very specifically told they're here to talk about American use. So while I agree with you that the global picture should be part of the conversation, the committees were specifically informed that it was not. So take that up to a higher level. The second thing is, I mean, it's just appalling. And David, I don't know how much you're on top of this, but it's really appalling that we're this far into the Biden administration in a pandemic and we still don't have a nomination for someone to actually run the FDA. So when you look at questions like, can we get resolution in language between an FDA resolution and a CDC resolution, you know, the head of the CDC doesn't really have a counterpart to talk to. There's a temporary person who is clearly not going to be the appointee. So it's really a mess. And I don't understand what the hell's going on in the White House. I can't imagine a situation more important to hasten an appointment to run the FDA than in the middle of a damn pandemic when you're trying to make mucho approvals. So Who knows what the hell's going on there? Although I would say just to also disagree with that, I don't think that if you had an FDA commissioner in there, that it would have been that dramatic of a difference. What would have been better is there wouldn't have been that much infighting and obvious kind of differing difference of opinions amongst the FDA staff that became very public and like the advisory committee setting that would not have happened. But I'm not so sure because I'll be honest, Peter Marks has way more input and power and the commissioner actually doesn't as much as one would believe. But Kavita, let me just ask you, don't you think when Pfizer said, here's how we're going to test this third dose thing, here's going to be our method. We're going to take this old study pool and blah, 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 look at it and use the same highly skewed population to provide answers about the impact of a third dose or the necessity of it. You don't think that if there had been a commissioner running the FDA, who was smart and savvy, there could have been some pressure put to on Pfizer to consider a different study pool, a different methodology, broadening it so that they actually had age groups represented. Not when you have somebody as experienced, I mean, kind of what you've seen, even if you had, let's take some of the most successful FDA commissioners in our memory, Scott Gottlieb is one, 
but there's no question there's, and I would actually say that if you had a newly appointed commissioner, probably even less, Janet knows Peter. So it's much easier for her to kind of say, here are some of the issues. I agree. Pfizer should not have done this. Pfizer will tell you they had no choice because it was a supplement to the BLA. And it goes back to what you said, Lori, that they were told this was sufficient data. The feedback was not there from the agency. I don't know if a commissioner would have made a difference. This was, this was bad staff kind of coordination and communication. Can I just interrupt and, and, and ask a question here? Because, you know, I'm a, I'm a podcast. <laughs> well, not, not when you guys are on it, but, um, um, I, but as, a, as, a, as, a, as a layman listening to this, you know, my, my reaction is, is somewhat different. My reaction is, well, I got my shot. I, I don't mean to make it about me, but just as an example, you know, I got my shot at the end of February and I'm told that it lasts a certain amount. Mm-hmm. And that it wears off after a certain amount. I've actually had a, a blood test that shows me that my antibody levels are high enough, but declining mm-hmm. as a result of time in these things. And so like anybody else who's just an average person, for me, the real issue is how long am I going to be covered? Yeah. Are we heading into you know a fall winter where I've got to deal with you know flu and we're going to see a resurgence of COVID? And we don't know whether we should be getting boosters. You know, we don't know how the, how this should be playing out. So, yes, I understand the bureaucratics and I understand the science, but are we going to create vulnerability for a large population by not having the right guidance on this? Well, yeah. And actually, it's interesting that, especially in the ACIP at CDC, there's been a lot of crosstalk saying, hey, you know, we still have a huge population of Americans that haven't had a single dose at all. You know, where should our resources be going? What is most important? And of course, it's interesting to ask, and that takes us back over and over again to the Israeli data. If we had, you know, 80% full dose, two dose coverage or J&J plus whatever, if we had that, would we have the necessity for a third dose? And so the Israeli right. data is very challenging because it shows a society that was highly vaccinated, and yet they ended up feeling they needed a third dose. Part of that may be that they got Delta later. So they had very high level of vaccination and then Delta hit them. And we have people who still aren't even vaccinated and they're getting hit with Delta. So it's some, some differences going on there that we can't fully understand. And of course, the other part is if I'm trying to answer your lay question, the question everybody out there is asking is part of the answer is we really don't know what's going on with variants. So we can't tell you, nobody can guarantee to you, to David, if you get your third dose and let's pretend you got Moderna to begin with, and then you're going to eventually have a third Moderna dose. No one can guarantee to you that that means you don't have to worry about anything and whatever variants come along won't bother you and you won't end up hospitalized. What people can say to you is even with two doses of Moderna or two doses of Pfizer or one dose of Johnson & Johnson, the likelihood that you'll have severe disease and end up hospitalized even against whatever variants come down the pike, is far lower than would be the case if you'd never had any vaccination. Yeah, and David, so just just to give you like 
because it is about you uh, and it should be about you. But now I'll make it about me. I'm SOL because not only do I, you know, not qualify because they didn't recommend it for healthcare workers, although the FDA did. So I think I'm safe and could probably get it. But because I got Moderna, they made a very clear point, And I can see why that this is really for the I think I saw the statistic that it's maybe 13 million people that had had Pfizer that are eligible now. Everybody else, you're SOL. Sorry. So it's very unsatisfying to see all this great data. But if, David, if you're over 65 or you do have one of these high-risk conditions, you're being told you should be getting a booster. But if you got Moderna, sorry, you shouldn't. <laughs> you can't. That's not satisfying. Well, I'll tell you something. You know, just it, it's not about me, but of course, I'm using myself as a sample group of one. My doctor said, well, you know, you could just go to the CVS and tell them you're high risk and they'll give you a booster anyway. That's right. In fact, here's the real mess that we're in now. You know, first, I don't think anybody in the White House should have leaked whatever the decision was. Was it a leak? Was it a deliberate put it out there and see if, if crap floats, whatever. But nobody should have been out there saying that the White House was considering a September 20 deadline for a third dose. Um, before this whole rigmarole was really thoroughly worked out, because what's already happened is that it's widened the class difference in vaccination in America. So people who have savvy, who have a good relationship with their physician, who have the wherewithal to, to go stomping off into the CVS or whatever and make the case in an intelligent way, have indeed already gotten third doses. and. What's not happening is servicing the millions and millions and millions of Americans that don't fit in those boxes. So if you're on the Navajo Nation, if you're in South Chicago, if you're in, you know, rough neighborhood of Baltimore, if you're up in Harlem, odds are you don't have a kind of CVS that lets you just kind of wander right in and make the case that you should get another shot in your arm. But the other question I think that's on everybody's mind is, where are we in this? We've been talking about it together as a group for a year and a half. And, you know, we were like, well, this is coming. We may be turning the corner. No, it's coming back. We may be turning the corner. No, it's coming back. You know, we're now here with, you know, this kind of pandemic of choice in red states where the vast majority of the most severe cases are concentrated in states with the Republican governors that have been advocating against vaccines and against masks. But we're also entering the winter. You know, we're also entering a period where we tend to see more flu. We tend to see more. Uh, we have saw a resurgence of COVID before. I'd like each one of you to give me your three, four minute prognosis for the next couple of months for the pandemic and the general health and welfare of the United States as it pertains to that. My brain has to be very simple about this. I kind of have to work my life now, David, in three to six month increments. I think that we're going to actually, because of just generally speaking, we've been holding a little bit to these norms of how much time are in between these surges on an average, you know, anywhere from two to four months, depending on where you are. And then the kind of how long these surges last have also not exactly, but fallen into patterns anywhere from eight to 10 weeks. So I think that we're actually going to escape with having 
and especially if we have a kid's vaccine authorized in the next six to eight weeks, which we should, we are going to have actually like potentially a decent Thanksgiving time. Will we have more surges in three to four months? Fast forward. Absolutely. I don't know what the magnitude of those will be. I, I knew we were going to have one recently, but didn't think it would be anywhere near and didn't expect for Delta to have this increased transmissibility to the degree it did. So the thing that makes these like magnitude issues volatile to me, and I'm kind of fully expecting this, is if we have a variant that does have incredible opportunity for immune escape. Feels like our mRNA vaccines are so elegant, David, that it's not total immune escape and we've underplayed. I think, Laura, you've talked about it, but I've certainly done more research on, you know, parts of our immune system that are not measurable, like your antibodies, but kind of memory cells, T cells and B cells and things that kick in that you can't measure as easily at a you know doctor's office. So I do think that the future is brighter, but the magnitude of which this becomes kind of a problematic does get a little more regional. And I'm hoping I'm going to have Lori correct me if she disagrees, but I actually hope the worst is behind us because I'm hoping that this immune escape scenario does not happen. I'd love to hear that too, because I've been talking to you, you guys for a long time, and I've never heard Lori say the worst is behind us. Well, I, Lori may not, but I, it's, it's a usually not, I'm guarded and being so optimistic, but now I've looked at kind of the modeling. And again, I'm putting a lot of faith not that the world gets vaccinated, the skies open up and everybody's singing hallelujah, but that our mRNA vaccines or our ability to prioritize ourselves in vaccine lines is high and we're first. And so even if we had something that escaped all immunity, death case scenario, we'll get taken care of because that's what America does. We take care of ourselves. Lori? Well, I think the important verb in Kavita's uh, rendition has been the repeated use of I hope, I hope. <laughs> and uh, I did work for Barack Obama. So, you know, they drill, they, they etch that in, you know, hope and change. <laughs> but I mean, of course, I agree with you in the hoping. I agree with you in the interpretation of the future. You know, it's interesting there. One of the big COVID tracking and forecasting consortias out there just this week put out their forecast mm-hmm. going into the winter that shows a real downturn in the number of new cases and in hospitalizations with it really dropping down to basically where we were at the best of things this year by roughly January, 2022 or February, 2022. So that would coincide with Kavita's hope that the holidays will bring us back together at the Thanksgiving table and the the Christmas slash Hanukkah table. But I'm not sure that I buy it. And here's why. First of all, we have many times gone into speaking in the past tense about this pandemic and then had ourselves, you know, slapped across the face by this virus. And I fear that the speed with which we, get, we roll out vaccine in developing countries is being hampered by not just the availability of vaccine, but of syringes, of skilled personnel of alcohol swabs, of everything that's involved in actually vaccinating people on a mass scale. And because this is all messed up and inadequate and unlikely to really be settled and resolved until well into 2022, 
we're going to constantly see more new variants emerging. And the one that I'm kind of keeping my eye on and I hope turns into nothing is one that emerged out of Tanzania where the president died uh, six months ago, having denied the existence of COVID, denied all COVID services, fired doctors right and left, and then he died of COVID on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. The new president who took over is trying to get the country back on track, but there's a huge amount of virus circulating unabated. No masks, no social distancing, no vaccine in Tanzania. And three travelers from Tanzania showed up in Angola, where they were picked up by a South African surveillance team as having a new mutant strain. The nature of the mutation is that it's a deviant form of the virus that's unlike any of the viruses that we currently target our vaccines against. So without going into the weeds on this, all 10 of the major mutations in this virus are in a completely different class of viruses. It's as if the original Wuhan strain just suddenly went through a wild series of evolution steps. And this is the kind of thing that I think we just constantly keep acting as if we don't believe in the possibilities of worst case scenarios. And I, all we've had is worst case scenarios. Why do we keep imagining and believing that somehow we've overcome everything and the, the worst obstacles have been knocked down and here we go and we can just blithely make a prediction and everybody can go shopping for Christmas. I just can't bear this anymore. I feel like uh, we're in the 20th month of this pandemic and we still don't have a strategy. We still just fight about tactics. We still just argue about incremental changes in the epidemiology as if any of it really in the big scheme of things matters. And I still don't see any sign of really genuine leadership in this pandemic. I still don't know who's in charge to you. I, don't, I still don't sense that there's somebody in the back room gaming the system to figure out what's the next worst case step that could happen. What's the next one after that? How can we be ready for that? What can we do to preempt? that possibility. And I, it's, it's very distressing to me. I'm fed up with the epidemic. And, you know, the other night, Trevor Noah had uh, Greta Thunberg on. And he said, are you sick yet of talking about climate change? She said, I'm so sick of it. I am so tired of talking about this. I'm fed up. I wish I could just go be a kid. Well, I feel the same way about this epidemic. I'm sick and tired of it. I'm sick of every way that it's affected all of our lives. And I wish I could just go back to planning wine tasting trips in France. But I'm sorry. You know, this virus is not disappearing on us. And we're not yet at a stage where anybody who is socially and politically responsible should be out there talking about near-term scenarios where the risk of this virus and its worst case scenarios has somehow evaporated. We only have a minute or two, but I just want to go back to your last point. What would real leadership look like? What, what, if you could sit down across from 
President Biden and say, here are the three things I want to see. What are they? Well, the first thing would be a strategic goal. What is our strategic goal? Right now, every country has a different goal if they even have one. And it's about themselves. It's about their own territory, their own populations. It imagines that somehow, you know, you can build a moat around your nation and protect it from what's outside. And we know that's not true with this virus. So what is the strategic goal? Is it, do we harbor any hope of actually eradicating this virus? If not, then do we harbor hope of creating an infrastructure or limiting both hospitalization and death everywhere in the world? so that the virus may circulate, but few people actually succumb to it because we have interventions that are timely that get people taken care of without needing hospitalization. Is that a reasonable strategic goal? Or are we just going to continue to putter along with the kind of policies that were laid out this week at the United Nations General Assembly and that came out of yesterday's big summit convened by President Biden? And if that's the case, then all we're going to end up doing is setting up an infrastructure that parallels what we already did with HIV, meaning billions of dollars worth of financing and resources moving from rich countries to poor in perpetuity to help them do battle against a disease that will continue to circulate and to kill and to hospitalize and to tax resources and to overwhelm health systems. That doesn't sound like a strategic goal to me. It sounds like giving up. It sounds like saying what's good for the rich countries, eh, we'll throw a little of it to the poor. And even the announcement of, you know, more billions of doses that are, well, not billions, but 1.5 billion total that the White House has agreed to purchase from Pfizer primarily to then give to COVAX, which then will disperse it to the poorer countries of the world. That's not trivial. And it certainly puts the United States in the forefront of donating more doses than any other country. But that's a far cry from the necessity. You know, you need basically 16 billion doses, not 1.5. And you need that many syringes and that many vaccinators and that many, you know, just do the math. I would say my challenge, if I were at the UNGA right now, I would say to all the leaders of the world, show me where it states, what is the strategy? I'm looking at all these statements. You got these angry things saying, get rid of the TRIPS accord on patent protection for this vaccine and for these drugs compel the rich countries to share their technology with the poorer countries, compel greater distribution, all that. Those are all tactics. Where's the strategy? I don't see one. And that's what I would demand of leadership. What's the strategic plan? And part of that is who's in charge of it. It's a great, great point and why we're always so uh, privileged and, and pleased to be able to talk to you and even if even if the prognoses are 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 somewhat dark, I really get the sense when I talk to you guys that we're talking about the truth, and that often that doesn't make its 
its way out as people are dealing and, and distracted by headlines of the day and incremental doses of news. So thanks again. Obviously, we'll come back, continue this conversation for some time to come and look, look forward to that. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you, Lori. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, if you want to find out more of what we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Click on membership if you want to support hearing more analysis like this. And be careful out there because we are not out of the woods yet. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.